as we've been looking through our study in Matthew and been spending some time here on the Sermon on the Mount over the last little while, Jesus has been, you know, confronting this notion that people had that, you know, I can be right with God. I can be uh, all good by living a righteous life, by putting all these things into practice. I can be holy and righteous. And, and you take, for instance, the, the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus had to contend with and deal with oftentimes in, in teaching and his public ministry. These were the religious leaders. The Pharisees were the ones that interpreted and applied the law. The scribes were the ones that recorded and, and interpreted the law as well. And these were ones that were oftentimes boasting in and being prideful of the fact that they were living out the law, that they're carrying out the law to the letter and that all was good with them. But Jesus comes along and especially here in the Sermon on the Mount begins just to kind of fire some, you know, darts right in their own thinking and theology and begins to reveal that keeping the law is not about outward ability, but rather about inward attitudes. Keeping the law was not about performing and doing all these things in an outward way, but it's more about what's going on in the heart. So Jesus has come now and been explaining what the law says, but going further to really define what the law means, not externally, but inwardly. You see, so many were teaching that to obey the law to fulfill what God's word said, when we talk about the law, we're talking about the first five books of the Bible and, and it got broken down even more so, but the law encompasses the first five books of the Bible. So to fulfill all these you know, uh, things that God had given, they're beginning to think, well, all we need to do is just kind of live these things out in an outward way. So to obey the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, we just gotta make sure we don't kill anybody and then we'll be fine. We're upholding the law. But Jesus comes along and he begins to make clear for us that our righteousness is not linked to externals. It's not linked to what we do or how we perform. It's a matter of the heart, not outward actions. And so with six illustrations from Matthew 5, starting verse 21, which we looked at last time, from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, Jesus illustrates six things from the law to begin to reveal that these laws are broken even through our inward attitudes. So he reveals six points of the law, but then he begins to reveal what the real intent of that law was. For instance, as we saw earlier in chapter five, do not murder. Well, Jesus comes along and says, listen, if you even have hatred in your heart towards another brother, it's as though you've committed murder in your own heart. Don't commit adultery. We can all say, okay, great. Yeah, I've done that. I fulfilled that in an outward way. But then Jesus says, listen, have you lusted at another person? Because if you lusted another person, it's as though you committed adultery in your own heart. I mean, this would have been very striking and piercing to the people who were in an outward way thinking, oh man, we are the most holy and righteous people. And to many of the regular people, the Pharisees and the scribes, were certainly the standard, they thought, of righteousness. But Jesus says, understand, I'm looking beyond the externals and I'm cutting into the internal, what's going on in your heart. 
The Pharisees and scribes, I'm sure, were thinking, ah, nobody knows the real us. But as long as we put on that performance, everything's going to kind of take care of itself. But Jesus says, it's not just a matter of action by which we're declared guilty before God. It's a matter of inward thoughts and attitudes. J.M. Boyce said this, true Christian morality must arise from the heart. And as a result of this, no one but God who controls the heart can provide it. Let me say that again. True Christian morality must arise from the heart. And as a result of this, no one but God who controls the heart can provide it. Understand something, that the law could not make you right with God. The law was not an instrument by which we now could find our own righteousness before God by checking off the boxes saying, I've done it, fulfilled this, I'm living this out. The law was given to reveal God's standard of righteousness, but it also revealed that we were unable to live up to it. And the law could do nothing to enable you to live it out. It had no power within itself. It was simply a sign to say, you are unable. And thus, because of the law and God's standard of righteousness, you're guilty before God. In other words, you need help. <laughs> you need something beyond yourself. But that's where Jesus comes in. Because Jesus comes and he fulfills the law, but now through life in him gives us the power to live a righteous life. Not through our own works, but through Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is so much more greater than what the law could ever do. And not that the law was bad. Don't, don't hear me saying the law is bad. Just rip all that out of your Bible. We don't need to. No, that's not what I'm saying. The law is good. It, it's converting the soul. It's causing us to realize we need Jesus, and that's why the law was given, was to point us to and lead us to Jesus, who would be our righteousness. So each of these six illustrations, Jesus begins with, you've heard that it was said. So he's pointing out what they know, what they've been taught, and, and they've all heard this. He's going to point to what the law said and, and at times even to what the, the Mishnah says. Now, the Mishnah was the oral traditions that were passed down as, you know, what the law really meant as they tried to interpret this more when they see, you know, um, keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy? What does that require? So they begin to pass down these oral traditions of, of how you fulfill the Sabbath. And, and that got put together in the Mishnah and then further um, explained in the Talmud. And so Jesus is, is quoting, that's why he says, you've heard that it was said, this is a lot of times oral tradition, not exactly what the word says, but he's pointing to what they held to as the law. And then he'll come and say, but I say to you. So you've heard that it was said, and you're all trying to fulfill that, but now I say to you. And again, in the Sermon on the Mount, people were amazed at the end of the sermon. We go to the end of chapter seven. People were amazed because he spoke with authority. It's very much unlike what the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis were teaching. They all passed down information from others, but Jesus spoke with authority because he was fully God. And he's speaking as one that's not just the writer of the law, but the very fulfillment of it all. And as he begins to reveal the truth of what God desires and the real intent of the law, he seeks to break down, again, that true heart and understanding of the law. So like I said, we've already covered those first three. We're gonna look at now, I was hoping to get to the next three. We didn't make it, all right, in the first service. So 
we're not going to get through this whole chapter. Um, but we're looking at, first of all, sincerity and surrender in these next two that we're going to be seeing. If you're taking notes, sincerity and surrender is uh, how we're kind of breaking this down. Look at verse 33 again. Let me read that. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and let your no no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So Jesus now, he points to the law spoken of in a couple places, Numbers 30, verse two, for instance, and then Leviticus 19, verse 12. Now here's what Leviticus 19, verse 12 says. Sorry, I don't have it up on the slide, but Leviticus 19, 12, hopefully you're taking notes, write that down. It says, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God I'm the Lord, okay? So you shall not swear by my name falsely. And, and by swearing, of course, we all understand it doesn't mean what we typically think of it today. It's simply taking an oath, making a promise, like we've oftentimes maybe done. Listen, I'm gonna do this. I swear I'm gonna do this. You're not gonna swear. You're, you're making a vow and a, a promise with that. So the Pharisee said, okay, all right, good, we can do that. Don't swear by my name falsely. And so they emphasized swearing by the Lord's name rather than emphasizing simply swearing falsely. They said, anything that we do as a vow or promise, we just won't include the Lord's name in it. And that means that if we kind of break it. Well, we haven't disobeyed God's word. We may have sworn falsely, but we didn't do it in the Lord's name. We didn't include the Lord's name in that. And so you begin to see, they begin to think of ways to try to get out of what they were saying. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, how we've kind of grown up with this idea that we've got to add some weight to our words. We've got to not just say, I'm going to do it, but we've got to really show, oh, no, 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 no. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking there's no way he's going to do it. No, I'm, I'm vowing, I'm promising. We've, we've always come up with a way that we've got to add weight to our words because we all feel like sometimes our words aren't enough. And, and the person that's listening, sometimes you, hearing from another person, you're going, yeah, they're not going to live up to that. There's no way. They're not doing that. And we all, we all got to come up with ways to do it. it. Right from a young age, we've all learned how we got to add something to what we're saying to really show the, the validity and the power behind it, right? As a young age, what did you learn? Cross my heart, hope to die, poke a needle in my eye. What kind of sick, morbid generation was raising me? That gave me nightmares. Needle in my eye, what? I don't like that. I mean, we'd all be walking around with pin cushions in our eyes if we held to that. You'd all be like, oh, following Matthew 5, 29, pluck out your eyes if you sin. I see that you've been doing that, right? That's not what it's about. But we recognize that there's a leeway oftentimes to our words, right? That our words or our promises don't always have to be carried through unless we're really making an emphatic kind of condition on those words saying, no, 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 I promise, I, I guarantee, I swear I'm going to do that. We have to feel like we need to convince people that our words can be trusted. It's sad, isn't it, that that's kind of what we live with. So again, 
the Pharisees were going, yep, uh, you can trust our words. No, we're gonna, we're gonna swear. But again, they were looking at ways to get around this, right? They, they would say, okay, all right, we're going to, um, we're gonna swear by heaven. We're gonna swear by uh, the earth. We're gonna swear by Jerusalem. Man, that's a holy city. Uh, uh, you know what? We'll even swear by our own head. Jesus is confronting the very ways that they were trying to give weight to their words, but in so doing, thinking, well, we're not breaking the law because we're not swearing falsely by his name, but we'll come up with other ways and other means by which we can swear by to give weight to our words. But they knew if they broke it, it's all good because they're not contradicting scripture now. It's again, like when we were kids and someone would say, all right, if you eat that worm, I'm gonna eat that worm too. I promise if you do it, I'll do it too. And you go ahead and you eat that worm and the other person says, ah, my fingers are crossed. I don't have to do it. And you'd be like, you're right. You're, you're free. You're immune because your fingers are crossed. And you know, you don't challenge you. You're like, yeah, you got me. All right. I'm the sole one eating a worm. Great. All right. And you're like, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's viable. Your fingers are crossed. And then you come up with the idea, you learn afterwards how to get around. And now everything you're saying, well, are you gonna do it? Are you gonna jump off the dock if I jump off the dock? Yes. And you're like, show me your hands. Not crossed, okay. And then they're like, no, my shoelaces are crossed. Ah, I don't have to do it. You're like, yeah, you got me again. All right. I gotta jump off the dock and you don't now. All right. And so we come up with these ways to kind of, you know, exempt ourselves from having to carry out our words. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. So Jesus says, listen, you might be fulfilling the commandment to not break an oath made in the name of the Lord, but your hearts are all wrong because you're still walking in deception. You're still practicing a, a deceptive uh, life here by saying something that you have no intent to really feel like you need to keep in honor. Even though you're trying to add some weight to it, you're going, it's not in the name of the Lord. So if I do it, if I don't, it, it's, it's just a wash. And so these Pharisees were coming up with all these ways to say, well, I'm gonna swear by heaven, I'm gonna swear by Jerusalem, the earth, I'm gonna swear by my own heaven. But here's what Jesus says, listen, you can swear by all those things, but all those things are still representing the Lord. They're all the Lord's. You can swear by heaven, but guess what? It's God's throne. You can swear by the earth, but listen, it's his footstool. You can swear by Jerusalem, but listen, it's the city of the great king. And you can even swear by your own head, but guess what? You cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, God is the one that's still in control of that. If we thought we had control of what's going on in our body, we'd all have thick, rich, lush, naturally colored hair. You think I'd be living with this? No, but I've got no control over that. God's the one that's in control of all those things, regardless of what we're swearing by. They're all representing God. And these people, the, the religious leaders, were greatly misrepresenting God in how they were conducting themselves. Now, they, you know, they might've looked religious. They might've looked godly outwards, putting all these things into practice, but inwardly, they were deceptive and tricking people. And God was more concerned about their heart and about how they're representing him. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, hey guys, here's something you might wanna try. 
let your yes be yes. It's as simple as that. Let's not try to look for the loopholes of how we can get around what we say and not have to uphold our word. Let's not look for ways that we can be tricking people and getting around it. If you say something, then do it, mean it. If you're not having any intention of carrying through what you are speaking, then don't speak it. Let your yes simply be yes. Be people of your word. Why? Because look at what Jesus says. Anything more than that, e, it's from the evil one. See, here's one thing that God can't do. What is it? Somebody? Lie. God cannot lie. He's a God of his word. What he says, he means. And what he means, he says, and he carries out what he says. Praise the Lord for that. But you have the evil one, the devil, who is known as the father of lies. God cannot lie, but the devil is the father of lies. So who are you more representing? Are you one that's holding out truth and living out what you say, what you say you mean, what you mean you say, and, and, and you're not contradicting that by your actions, by how you're living? Are you carrying those things out? Is your yes, yes? Is your no, no? Let us be citizens of the kingdom by how we speak and keep our word. How we speak truth and how we keep our word. Now, some people have looked at this to now say that we shouldn't take oaths at all. That making a vow or promises is, is just wrong. It's going against, that's not what we're saying because Jesus himself had to testify under oath in Matthew 26. This is simply speaking of using an oath falsely to deceive. Oaths and promises aren't wrong. I'm thankful for the vows my wife made to me at our wedding day some 28 years ago. And I'm praying that someday she'll live up to them, but that's here and there. So let's just move on. But we need to get on. Verse 38, let's keep moving, guys. We gotta hurry. Verse 38, you've, no, she's fabulous. I love my wife, she's wonderful. Um, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So Jesus now quotes from uh, a verse in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. And this is a law that people love to live by today. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? We, we love this. In fact, some live by the motto, I don't get mad, I just get even, right? Some of you are convicted right now, and that's okay. We'll pray for you after the service. Some of you live by that motto. Listen, I'm gonna be honest with you today, full, full disclosure. I didn't live with that motto per se. I lived with the motto, I don't just get even, I get one up. Anyone else with me there? No? Is it just me that's really having, thank you, Jason, in the back there. All right, we'll have a support group afterwards for this, but. I grew up with that kind of mentality. If somebody wrongs me, and usually it was like friends and we're pranking one another. And I'm like, if they do something against me, 
I'm not just getting even. I'm going to get one up. I'm going to make sure they pay heavily for what they've done and that they'll think twice about ever trying that again. That's how you lived and survived, right? So that was kind of my mentality. I'm not just going to get even. I'm going to get one up. And so, listen, I don't live like that anymore. The Lord convicted me last week, so we're all good. You don't have to worry if you're like, all of you are going, did I wrong Brent recently? Because I'm sleeping with one eye open now. It's okay. You should be fine. But the point is, this command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was never meant to be, and I'll just write out for you just to see, never meant to be an obligation. It was rather a limitation. In other words, Jesus is not saying, this is what you need to do. If somebody knocks out your tooth, well, you need to find them, hunt them down, and you need to be sure you take out one of their teeth. It's just fair. It's just justice. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this because he understands the tendency of the human heart, like my heart was, where I was, uh uh-uh. I'm not just getting even. I'm not just gonna pay, I'm gonna go one up. He meant this to be a a limitation to say, do not go beyond what that person's done to you in retribution. Do not go beyond that, all right? This is not something that we're needing to carry out. This is something that's to restrict us and be sure that we don't go beyond in any kind of retribution or justice. But Jesus, he comes along now and He's not denying the legal application of the law. He shows that we don't need to carry this out on a personal level of revenge and vengeance. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And it's much better to live in a way where we say, you know what? I don't even need to worry about that. The Lord's gonna take care of it. The Lord's got that covered. I don't need to be the one doing that. We don't have to live our lives trying to get even when people wrong us because that's not the needed conduct of the citizens of God's kingdom. It's not the needed conduct. In fact, Jesus takes it one step further for us by saying, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other to him also. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, just... Try that this week and see how people respond when you slap them on the cheek. Do they give the other cheek to you? It doesn't happen too often. Doesn't work. But the citizens of God's kingdom, Jesus says, this is how we're to be conducting ourselves. We've seen the sincerity aspect of keeping our word, but this is the surrender aspect of the citizens of the kingdom where we're to be laying our lives down and not trying to defend, not trying to uphold our rights and our wants. We're to be living a life of surrender. Somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one to him also, don't retaliate. I can imagine Jesus is sitting with his disciples saying this and he's, hey, Peter, wake up, man. This is specifically being said for you and your benefit. You're gonna need this, right? Because Peter's the guy, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he's like, sword out, lopping off an ear, He's quick to defend. He's not learning that principle that Jesus was setting before us of surrender. And not only should we turn the other cheek, but we should be willing to give up our jacket to those who want to sue for our shirt. They want to take your shirt? You know what? Hey, guess you maybe need it more than I. Let me give you my jacket as well here. Let me give you more. And in this day, when he says if somebody... Uh, somebody compels you to go one mile, go with them too. 
in this day, a Roman soldier could come up and tap you on the shoulder and, and say, you need to carry my equipment for the mile. Now, you were only required to go a mile. That was your duty. You had to do that. They came and tapped you on the shoulder. You had to carry their equipment for a mile. But after that mile, you were free to go. No matter if that soldier was saying, oh, I'm not done yet. Nope. I did my duty, I've done my mile, I'm out. And he had to go and find somebody else. But Jesus comes along and says, hey, you know what? Why don't you really flip his lid and go another mile with him? See how he responds to that? See what he says? And there's something glorious about that. As we begin to live a life of surrender and laying down our rights, though it'd be our right to say, I'm out, I'm checking out, I've done what I need to, go beyond that and see how people will respond and take that. Because now, as you go an extra mile, guess what that Roman soldier's doing? What is up with this person? Why is he continuing on? He's free to go and he's still with me. What's going on? And you get to say, you know what? Man, I just, just a life that's been so radically changed through Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. And I, I've recognized that the blessing of life is not being lived for self, but living in a, a servant way. You see, as we surrender our desires and our rights, we get to bless others. We get to spend time just sharing and revealing the gospel. We get to be living it out. We get to reveal the kingdom way. And guess what? The kingdom way is not about our way. It's about laying down our way to show the way, the way to Jesus. <clears throat> Let me say it again. The, we get to reveal the kingdom way, and the kingdom way is not about our way. It's about laying down our way to show the way to Jesus. And that's what we get to do in this life of surrender. We get to live a life that's so radically different than the way that the world tends to go, and we get to reveal how we're citizens of another world. It's the kingdom of God. It's much more blessed and wonderful to be living in. William Barclay said, Christians think not of their rights, but of their duties, not of their privileges, but of their responsibilities. See, it's in, it's in surrender for Jesus that we have much to gain. And Jesus is our ultimate example in this because he came and he laid down his rights. He was mocked, he was slapped, he was beaten, scourged, he was nailed to a cross. And he surrendered without retaliating. So we reflect our savior when we endure abuses and inconveniences graciously and without retaliation. When we're willing to walk in surrender, we model the life of Jesus in such a wonderful and profound way. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. And we're gonna move into a time of communion here this morning, which is a time for us as the church to truly remember and reflect on the amazing sacrifice that Jesus made for us. The life of surrender, that he laid it all down for us. And we get to celebrate that because of him doing that for us, we get to have life now. Life that we get to live for Jesus life that we get to live in Jesus and the blessing that he has for us. Maybe you're here today and listening online and you don't know where you stand with God today. Maybe you've been looking at all the externals and thinking, well, I do this and I do that. And so surely that's gotta garner me some favor with God. I need to tell you today that there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to be right with God. 
You can't be a good enough person. You can't do enough good things to gain that favor of God. But here's what we are called to do, is to simply call out to Jesus. We're called to repent, and that means to turn away from our sin and our way to choose to go his way and to receive Jesus as the very means for our salvation. He died on a cross, and in so doing, he paid the penalty for your sin. He paid the fine that we owed, which was death. We can pay that aside from dying, which would mean separation from God. But Jesus came and died that death for us. But he died and he rose again so that we could have life in him and be given the gift of eternal life to know that when we die, we're gonna spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. That doesn't happen by us living a good life, being a good person. That happens by us receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, the one who paid the penalty for our sin, the one that forgives us through his sacrifice. He's alive today to secure life for you. If you've not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you, let today be the day. There's nothing you need to do. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no works to perform. It's simply you praying a prayer like this. And if you would, just in your own heart, if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, would you just simply pray a prayer like this after me in your heart? Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner and that I'm in need of saving. I can't do it on my own. But I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I recognize today that you died on a cross to forgive me my sin and you rose again that I could have the gift of eternal life. So I receive you, Jesus, today as my Savior. Come and be my life. I live now for you. Thank you for the work you've done for me. Amen. If you prayed simple prayer like that from your heart today in sincerity, the Bible says you've become a born-again creation. Old things have passed, we build all things have become new. You're a child of God. And I encourage you, continue to learn of him, grow in him, and just live that life in Jesus and for Jesus. All right.